You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. You're listening to this podcast. You love podcasts. Hopefully, you also love the Second City and our work. You know who else will love podcasts from the Second City? Your colleagues and employees. I'm excited to share a new partnership that the Second City Works is entering into with Venly, an audio technology company that allows businesses to share audio and podcasts directly for employee engagement and learning and development. Our new series, First Takes, uses amazing corporate insights and teaching that we've developed through the years and communicates it in eight short podcast episodes. Share this content with your employees on channels like Slack, Microsoft Teams, SharePoint, First Up, and your LMS, all with enterprise-grade security, privacy, and analytics. Interested in sharing this content and learning more? Register at www.venly.co slash Second City, and we'll get you set up. Once again, it's www.venly.co slash Second City to get access to the First Takes content series. We're looking forward to learning with you and your colleagues. We welcome back Daniel Coyle to the podcast. Uh, Dan is the New York Times bestselling author of The Talent Code, The Little Book of Talent, The Secret Race, which he co-authored with Tyler Hamilton, Hardball, A Season in Projects, and other books. Um, he has a new book. Uh, it's called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. Always a blast talking to Daniel Coyle. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Daniel Coyle, welcome back to the show. It is so good to be back with you. Thanks so much for having me. And let's say, you should tell people where you are right now. I am in uh, Goodyear, Arizona, the site of the Cleveland Guardians Spring Training Facility, and, and baseball's back. The crack of the bat is just, just outside this room I'm in. I know. When this, when this thing airs, it will, will probably be playing baseball. We'll see how our respective teams are doing. Uh, last time we uh, went up, it was a World Series. That's right. Let's do that again. That I mean, let's fun. do that again. Slightly more fun for you than for me, but let's do that again. Slightly at the very end. I think before the rain delay, you're feeling pretty good. <laughs> you are exactly right. Yes. Oh my God. I was relating to someone that my son who is at Skidmore college was watching in the uh, cafeteria, but then because of the rain delay, they had to close and he couldn't get to a TV. So he uh, called me and I did play by play through the end of the game. 
Oh my God. Which is a great moment to share, right? That is fantastic. That's a great, that is, that's beautiful. Um, I want to start with the opening lines of your new book. You write, quote, I believe culture doesn't depend on who you are, but on what you do. Mm. I love it. Uh, <laughs> let's unpack it. Um, yeah. when, when you're talking about that, I mean, you're not, I, I, guess the, I guess it would equate to the phrase that I use, which is uh, meaning is made in moments. Hmm. Yes. Right. Right. No, I think that's absolutely true because those moments, and I say, what are those moments made of? I'd say they're made of action. Like yeah. moments aren't made of words, right? Words are lovely and they're pretty and they can describe and they can distract. And we often think whenever we talk about culture, we end up using a lot of words, right? We talk about values and integrity and trust and teamwork and leadership and engagement and honesty and mission and purpose. And you get wrapped up in this, this sort of spaghetti tangle of, of, of words. But actually, when you think about the greatest cultures, you notice them when you walk into the room. If no one talks, you still will feel that sense of connection and direction and trust and words have very, very little to do with it. So the, this idea, this, this mistaken idea that I think we have in our culture that, that, that culture involves, good cultures involve a lot of talking. I think that's wrong. I, I think really it comes down to behaviors. Your culture is not created by the words you use. It's created by the behaviors you use. And there's just, you know, the idea of the book is that there are sort of these three buckets, three families of behaviors that really perform the function of bringing humans together in these cohesive groups. Yeah. And we're going to talk about some of that, but I think we should also set up like, this is friggin' hard. Um, mm-hmm. and, and you write quote, strong cultures wrestle with plenty of problems, disagree vigorously and fail with regularity. The difference is strong cultures experience these problems, disagreements and failures within bonds of strong, secure connection. And they use them as leverage to learn and improve a similar idea, which is like, if it doesn't hurt, you're not doing it right. Like when you yeah. go to a gym yeah. or even existing inside a business, it's hard. Exactly. And it's made doubly hard by this fallacy that we have, which is that good cultures are all happy places where no one ever disagrees. You know, you sort of put picture Pixar in your mind. It's this happy inventive place where every idea is great and there's Woody and Buzz and, and every everything's bubbly and champagne and, and seashells and balloons. And in fact, when you go there, it is not that. In fact, these, these high-performing cultures and strong cultures are places where I think of it as type two fun. Like there's mm. type one fun, which is let's go play ping pong and let's have these, these experiences together that are fun. Type two fun is when you're like doing hard stuff with people you admire. And I think that is more, and that hard stuff often involves we don't, we want to have our ideas fight it out. We're not going to fight it out personally because we have a good relationship, but we're going to see what, let the best idea win. And we'll argue and we'll have tensions around that. And so this whole idea of tension is a bad thing, I think is something that good cultures need to overcome. They need to, good cultures are where, like, even with, with sports, tension is how athletes explode toward the basket. Tension is how you generate force in comedy tension is how you generate narrative yeah. momentum. Yes. And in, in cultures, those tensions aren't bad things. They're actually, they're actually the source of your power. And, and so the more you can turn toward them and get shoulder to shoulder and start fixing stuff together, the stronger your culture will be. I don't recall if in the previous book you talked about uh, psychological safety or Project mm-hmm. Aristotle. Did you? Yep. 
Yep. Okay. Yep. So you'll be fascinated about this. I just interviewed Todd Cashton, who is a professor and he's got a book called the art of insubordination and he he has a great section in here where he talks about these um, uh, other professors who went in and basically discovered that it isn't just psychological safety that makes a team great it's that there's a level of dissent that's accepted inside that that's right that's right safety is actually about freedom how about Mm -hmm. that like safety isn't safety just for safety's sake the goal is not to like be safe the goal is to is have a voice the goal is to use the, actually not just to have the voice, to use that voice and using that voice, as Todd points out in his great book, um, involves speaking up and saying, hey, I'm, I'm out on this. I, I disagree on this. We need to let's talk about this some more. Uh, it's not dissent for dissent's sake. It's dissent for progress's sake. Great. All right. Let's talk about a couple of things that people can do. Um, you talk about belonging cues. What, mm-hmm. what are those and how, how does one use them? Yeah. And, and this whole book, I guess, if I pull the camera back a little bit, it's, it's, uh, it's called the culture playbook. And the idea is that it's, it's built on these actions, right? These simple actions, but to understand the actions, some, some concepts are useful and be- belonging cues is one of those core concepts that recurs um, a lot in the book and belonging cues are short, simple, vivid behaviors that send a message. I hear you, you belong. We share a future together. That's, that's one. Um, this, this idea that you have, you have a voice here and I am intensely curious to hear what you say and to act on it. There's, there's a lot of cool belonging cues that, that we talk about in the book, but I guess one of my favorite ones is this, uh, this Navy captain, his name was Mike Abershoff, and he came upon a boat. He was given command of a boat called the USS Benfold, and it was one of the worst performing team boats in the Navy. Um, the first thing he did is he did individual interviews with all 200 crew members. This took about a week. He'd bring them in and he would say, well, tell me one thing you like about life on Benfold. Tell me one thing you don't like. And tell me one thing you think we should uh, start doing. And, and he did those interviews. And whenever anyone came up with an idea that should be implemented immediately, he would pull down the loud hailer, the sort of uh, the intercom system, and just announce it. Uh, from now on, lunch is at 11.45. And so the person sitting in that seat gets this signal that their voice, which they shared with their commander, is being amplified and is being used to make life on the ship better. Uh, the Benfold goes on within two years to become the best performing ship in the Navy. Not, it's not a coincidence. They, they he had a very nice way to use belonging cues to create that, that togetherness that, that drives all performance. That's also a way of making mistakes work for you. That, that, yeah. that when you see your mistake as an opportunity, uh, worlds open. Worlds open up. Exactly. Because it's not really a mistake. That's the secret. <laughs> no, right? it, it, that stuff happens. It was an experiment. It was, it was a try. And you, no one's smart enough to get it right. And this idea that we live in these worlds of businesses and other organizations where status has to be protected and we're very, very risk averse because it might affect our status in the, in the group. These groups that are able to just let that go... I've sometimes heard it described as your secret second job in, in normal organizations that have weak cultures. Everyone has a secret second job that is about protecting their status. And it takes a lot of time, energy, and brain power. And when you have an organization where you don't have to worry about that, where you know your voice matters, where you're curious about other people's voices, where you admit your mistakes so that you can learn from them, you don't have that whole other job to do. So you actually have more time and energy to put to the work that matters. So I have been on a number of my recent keynotes 
in talking with clients, um, uh, people talk about things like creativity and innovation and they jam them together. Mm. And I talk very much about they're very, very different. And the fact is you can have creativity with no innovation, but you actually can't have innovation without creativity. You're swimming in this area when you have one of your tips, which is divide work into two buckets, productivity and creativity. Yeah. And the reason is because we cannot be in judgment when we're being creative. Yeah. But if we need to be productive, we have to then apply the judgment filter. But your work probably needs a level of creativity, which is somewhat structured mess. That's right. That's right. It has to be a little messy. And it's often best done in the company, in the physical company of other people. As, as we've come through COVID, I think that's been one of the big takeaways that being creative uh, when you're physically together is a lot easier. In fact, yes. there was a study that, that where they had a group of engineers and they had some of them co-located and some of them remote. And the ones who were co-located talked about the problem eight times more often. So that's a creativity steroid, right? If we're going to be co-located, we're just going to like bump into each other and we're going to, it's going to be in our mind and I'm going to see you and you, I'm going to remind you of the problem and you're going to remind me of the problem. And as a result, we're just going to get a lot more reps and attempts and experiments and our thinking as a group brain will be a lot smarter. And so this idea of, of really being intentional, I mean, COVID has had this kind of forcing function to create clarity around what work, how work should really be. And um, it is, it, and that's one of them where it's like, well, if we can only be together two days a week, let's make sure that we do work that is aligned with us being together, which is to say, let's be creative. Um. Do you know what the ideal second city cast size is for our resident stage shows? No. Six. No kidding. No kidding. Wa- so let's talk that- about that because th- wow. that's, that's, that's the number. Let's, let's talk about SEAL team size. Again, very similar. This all goes back to a rule that I have in the book called the two pizza rule. And it, it was developed originally at Amazon's, um, I think, product development teams where they realized like, you know, you're, you're building a team to do something hard and you think, well, we should have a, you know, a lot of people on it. We need a lot of brains in this room. We should have 12 people on it. We should have 10 people on it. And what they found is that the ideal number of team members is six. And, and the reason is that six is enough relationships that, that generate a lot of creativity, but not so many that it's exhausting to have good relationships with, with that many people. When you're in a team of 20, it's really hard to create I forget what that number would be. It'd be hundreds within that group of 20. There are hundreds of two person relationships. And if you have a team of six, or as I put in the book enough that can be fed with two pizzas, um, that's the right size to kind of maximize um, connection, safety, and also trust and creativity. Yeah. I mean, we came to ours trial and error. There were cast in the early days of five and of seven. And then, and then just like, by the time I got to second city in the late eighties, it was, it was six that that was the, and occasionally a stray, but it's never, it never works. It's, it's, it's that number. And I think you also get close to Dunbar's number, which is, is that 160? 150. Yeah. 150. Yeah, yeah. 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 Relationships that we can have. Uh, so I just found that fascinating. Um, we had Catherine Price on who wrote a book called The, uh, the Power of Fun. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm reading that and, now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's terrific. And you talk about this. This fun is not just a, a nice to have that there's mm-hmm. actually some data around the fact that it, it's, it's, it's good for us in business. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I think the key distinction is is one that we've sort of been playing around a little bit here on the edges. I make a distinction between shallow fun and deep fun. And uh, and shallow fun is is sort of like type one. It's sort of like the the things we enjoy doing together. It's it's the office with the ping pong table, right? And playing video deep fun is when you really take ownership over the experience of working in a place. Um, I, I came across a good example recently. There was a a company in Michigan that sent a small group, I think it was six people as ever, mm-hmm. um, to go out and get and bring back for the office, the best coffee on the planet. Like that's your job. We're going to drink coffee in this, this job. We want you to go find and source the most um, sort of ethical, ecological, and the best machine to grind it and the best machine to serve it. And when you're done, bring that back. And And that's an example of deep fun where you're actually not they're not playing ping pong together right they're doing this project together that is going to have an impact on the experience of what it means to be in this group and the other group that was kind of good at that was the US women's national soccer team you know who right. i think we all remember they would instead of their names on the back of their jerseys they would pick the names of women they admired so serena or ruth bader ginsburg and they would have special cleats that they would design for each big game. Um, and of course that team also was the one that fought for equal pay. Yeah. That is deep fun. It's like, they are not just sort of, you know, um, you know, playing shuffleboard or something. They are actually taking control over what does it mean to be on our team? What are we about? Um, who do we want to represent? And I think that's one of the, one of the lessons I think of the pandemic has taught a lot of organizations is like, we shouldn't just seek shallow fun. Like this is not about being back chairs. This is about giving people control over the experience of working here, which maybe it means we were in the office certain days a week and out of the office some other days of the week. Maybe it means we have this, you know, head down area for silent work and this other area for creative, for creative work. And the idea that the, the, the people who work there are going to have an increasing voice and control over the, the environment and the experience. This was an interesting area that that sidetracked Todd and I in our conversation, which was just yesterday, which was I, I was explaining there's three schools of improvisation, Viola Spolin, which is what Second City is born out of, uh, Keith Johnstone, uh, which is he's a, a Brit, uh, now Canadian, and that's like theater sports. Some people, comedy sports know that. And then there was a guy in Brazil named Augusta Boal who did a thing called Theater of the Oppressed, and this was improv as social movement. Oh, wow. um, and so Todd and I were talking about this idea of if you think about successful social movements, and he was sort of saying gay rights in the uh, 70s, that sort of area, high degree of play, hmm. you yes. know, colorful hats and other, and I'm, and I'm like, oh, and we saw a little bit of that recently as well, that they, there's, there's some joy inside of this. And I think maybe when people see a little less earnestness and more joy inside this, they might open up more to that message. Yes, you're right. And, and if you have, another example that comes to mind as you're talking is, Otpor, O-T-P-O-R. If you haven't read about them, they're, they're totally fascinating. It's a Tell us about them. Eastern European group that I think they were fighting Milosevic at the time, and they decided to use humor as a way to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. So they would put Milosevic's face on trash cans so it seemed like you were feeding him as you, as you did that. And they would play these funny songs, and they would... Uh, they were just quite, quite genius. They wrote a book about it. OTPOR is how it's spelled and, and worth, worth checking out if you're curious about this sort of stuff. Absolutely. So let, let's uh, go back a little bit to remote and hybrid work. Um, you write about um, cool kid bias, uh, which is the misperception that working in the physical office 
possesses more value, leverage, and impact than remote work. I think a lot of people think that. So what's wrong about that? Well, it's, 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 it's a challenge to deal with because the perception of it is so strong. Um, and whether it's true or not sort of doesn't matter because the perception is so strong. So the key, I think, is to, is to fix that informational asymmetry that happens. You have to let people who are remote know what's happening in the office you know, create a Slack channel, post pictures, do something to share, even inconsequential events. So there isn't this sense of informational isolation that, that you can get with remote work. Another thing that's cure that's sort of useful for this is to really pay keen attention to gender imbalances, right? There, there may be more men that are able to come back in the office because of caregiving allotments and uh, to to not let that affect the decision-making that happens in the office after that. And to, I was on a call recently where the, the leaders of the business took time to kind of celebrate and spotlight some parents who had able to, been able to spend time with their newborns because they were working remotely. So to really spotlight the value of remote work, um, to, you know, remote work does have its benefits, but when it comes to the office, there can sometimes be this sense of, oh, you, you know, you people out there aren't part of our club. And and really sending that message and making those connections to celebrate the good things that are happening out of remote work. And there's a lot of other good things that we know about it. Yeah, when we went remote and the theater was down for a year, um, which was rough, and and there was just tons of downsizing. At a certain point, I think it was like a month in, my colleague Abby and I were like, could we just host every Friday at three o'clock, 20 minute session for everyone who's still working. And I would always just play music, usually something that had just come out on Spotify. And then we would celebrate wins of the week. We started doing fiascos of the week. We always interviewed someone from the staff and asked them sort of absurd questions. And it just became this like that never before did we have those kinds of meetings. So this was new and it was very little agenda and it was very designed to be playful and it just like sort of was the, it was really powerful, I think, especially in, in that time. And we're still doing it because we can. No now, kidding. Yeah. We connect Toronto and Hollywood and, and different people. So I, I don't think that that is going to change. It's, it was more accessible as well. So I, I think, I think there's it. people, you, you wouldn't get box office staff with, you know, uh, food and beverage with theater production, never okay. in the same meeting. Yeah. Right. And how long were they? I, I want to steal like this. 20 minutes. 20 minutes. That's genius. Fiasco so, of the week, win of the week. Yeah. And, and then, the and then an interview. And for some reason, uh, my colleague Gary up in Toronto was interested in automatic faucets. So we always ask people if they have automatic faucets <laughs> and, and it, does, it makes no sense. Oh, and then people can do Q and a with that person. So they would also like in the chat, have all these questions about what movies they liked or things they were working on or things in their background. And I think it, it was really it was really good. And, uh, and then uh, last week, because we've been in touch on this, or Abby had been in touch with one of our alumni, Alan Arkin dropped by the meeting. No way. <laughs> yes. So, oh, my God. We talked for like half hour about, you know, his, his time at Second City and the other stuff he'd been working on. It's like, yeah, you can get Alan Arkin for that meeting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he's coming if it's in real life, but he sure no. came there. That yeah. is awesome. I'm writing that down. That is yep. so cool. Well, and again, like, and, and you think about people, you know, that like in the, it like a, a 20 minute Zoom call is no big deal. Yeah. And, you know, I, I remember during 
the thick of the pandemic, like Dan Pink and Kim Scott and I did like a call of like a check-in and what are you doing and how, how's this going? And are you've adjusted your keynotes and it's like, oh yeah, this wouldn't have happened yeah. without us feeling like it's an easy thing to do. Right. Um, uh, okay. Let's shift back to in-person because yeah. the scourge of my existence is open office space. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But you have a really interesting perspective shift to not think about it as a space problem, but a time problem. And I want you to go through that because I think that's radical and great. Good. I'm glad. Well, the, 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 it's been a debate for a long time, right? You know, you've got people on both sides saying, oh, open office is the answer. We'll have so much creativity. And other people are like, open office is terrible. Everyone just wears headphones and keeps their head down. Um, and the truth is, and the studies are sort of inconclusive on this because it just depends on context. It depends on the specific kind of work you're doing and the specific kind of group you are. So I, I think the answer is, is stop focusing on the space and start focusing on the time. Define time as being heads up or heads down. And it's, it's very simple to do. Say in this window, we are going to be working on solo work. We expect it's like a quiet car on Amtrak. And in this time after lunch, whenever it is, we are going to be, uh, we're going to be mixing and mingling. And, and alternatively, you could have a, a permanent space in your office that's more heads down, a permanent space that's more heads up. But to be, this is the way in which I think COVID is, has had this forcing function, like forcing us to be more intentional about all these kind of messy things that were happening in our office and to say, you know what, there really are. Introverts need a space too. Extroverts need a space too. There's never going to be one answer. So let's build a schedule that works for everybody. Yeah, because cognitively, I mean, the science is very, very clear on this, which is like, we're so easily distractible and multitasking is a myth. Um, and so you, you, it, but everyone does it. So you're now multitasking in a yeah. room with a bunch of other people. And the minute one other person walks into our, you know, our, our frame that also takes away attention. So exactly. it's, it is, it's like, it's, it's trying to have us, it feels like we're constantly doing this. Like we know the science ages ago and now we just have to catch up to it and, and why it takes decades and sometimes centuries. I don't know. Um, right. but that's, that's where we sit. Um, okay. In a moment, we're going to ask you for a yes and a thank you because oh, good. Uh, moment from your life. But before we do that, talk to us about the, the disease of more. The disease of more. This is connected to the topic we were just talking about. This, it's the defining modern disease of life, um, especially work life. This idea that every, I'm going to say it's like every week, every week, 10 days, there's something new comes along and it is a new way of doing slack it's a new technology it's a new process it's a new person it's a new method and we that tends to add up just sort of like a glacier piling up and we never stop to take anything away and so to actually when you and, and this is what contributes i think to what cal newport calls um this sort of this modern way of working the hyperactive hive mind i don't know if you've read his stuff but it's yeah we had him on the pod Oh, it's so great, right? That's right. This idea of this work as being this relentless connectedness to which these other things are always being added to it, it makes it seem exhausting and, and Sisyphean, really, that you, we will never get to the end of it. And so, A, calling attention to that, and B, is a, is a wonderful game that, that some, some researchers have had called the subtraction game, where you get together and for 20 minutes say, what, what, what? Do we still do that doesn't really add anymore to uh, our, our the benefit we're bringing into the world? What what 
can we do that just adds friction? Let's name those things. Let's let's name them and then let's stop doing them. So if we are going to move through this world, and I don't think there's much, there's not much that's going to stop this disease because there are so many giant forces that are churning out this these new versions of more and, and now that we have to navigate. Um, I think it's going to be on us to play the subtraction game a lot more often. I'm really, I'm very lucky because my friend Zoe Chance, uh, who we just had on the pod, has invited me to a monthly uh, meeting of people who are have just released books or in proposal phase or in writer's phase. Um, and, and so I'm getting inter- introduced to all, uh, I, it's a bunch of people I know, uh, behavioral scientists, and, but some others. And Lighty Klotz, uh, I got introduced through this group, and he has a book called Subtraction. No way. And, it is, and, and he has a, both a behavioral science and an engineering background. And it's just what you're talking about, this idea of like, we think in more, we always do, it's a human thing. But if we start doing that thinking of subtraction, we're going to reduce the kind of frictions that get in the way and gummy up the works. And tons of people, Bob Sutton's done work on friction. It, it's really, it, it, and it reminds me of like, this is when you're crafting great comedy. When you're crafting great comedy, you're working from abundance. Mm-hmm. But man, you are, how do I pare down to as few words as possible to get to the moment or the joke or the thing that's going to get the laugh. And it's always like sort of beautiful pairing. And you have, you, you have that, that time to do that. And I just think in, in our places of business, there's not a lot of time no. to, to subtract. Right. That's right. And there's status in always adding, right? You right. sort of, you know, you seem smart and you seem up with it and everything. And so, yeah, it is something to really stop and think about and, I like as an idea in, in, in sort of learning physical skills and it's learning all sorts of skills, but constraints, the power of constraints, mm, sure. the power of saying we're, I'm going to put this joke in 140 characters on Twitter. Right. And it, yeah. it really, that, that constraint makes that joke a lot better than if you had a whole legal pad, it, it, it absolutely sure. governs your attention. It, it sharpens the spotlight of that attention and it gets rid of all these fake pathways that you end up spending wasteful time wandering. And so this idea of subtraction as, as, a, as a force for good, you know, limits are ultimately a force for good, I think. And this idea that work should be limitlessly and, and, and that, that our, our, our private life should be limitless is just a, a road to unhappiness. Uh, figuring out what the limits are and, and keeping your focus on them and working within them is how you get your best stuff. There's so many analogies. I, you know, I've never heard anyone walk out of a play and go, I wish that was longer. <laughs> right. right? Who, do, who does right. that? Right, right. Oh, oh, give me 75, 90 minutes, no intermission. I'm good. Yep. Um, and actually, I just saw, I just saw a, a play like that, which is uh, King James, which is just open at Steppenwolf, which is about two, uh, 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 they become friends. They're from Cleveland. That they bond over LeBron James's first season. It goes from there through him leaving to coming back with the championship wow how is it it's great it's getting terrific reviews there were i know cleveland a little bit not enough to get all the references which Mm -hmm. which were like there's clearly people from cleveland who are laughing at that and then the debate around jordan and him was particularly uh uh, resonant in chicago but it was it was it was lovely and and part of the thing i noticed was like two actors really doing their work tight dialogue not long Great. Oh, that Great. sounds fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> I know. All right. So we usually end with a yes and story, but we're having a lot of repeat guests, which I love because it's good to catch up with people. Mm-hmm. And we were talking before the podcast started and I asked you if you might have a yes and a thank you because story, a story at a time where 
maybe you disagreed with someone or there was a disagreeable situation and yeah. the way you got out of it was kind of through an agreement. Yeah, right. No, I had a, um, I once tried to be a novelist. I, 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 you know, I've been a journalist for a long time. I've always written nonfiction, but when I was about, uh, this is when I was, this was about 35 years old. I'd written a couple of nonfiction books, but I, we were living in Alaska and I thought I should be a novelist. I got this brilliant idea because then I wouldn't have to travel as much. And I can, you, novelists just make up stuff, right? How hard can that be? So I did that and I wasn't very good at it. I wrote a novel that got published, but it just wasn't very good. And there was, um, you know, some editors that let me know it wasn't very good and, and they were right. And it was really hard to sort of take that. Mm-hmm. Um, and as time has gone on, I've sort of, my initial response is to never speak with those editors again, right? I would never right. want to. And as time has gone on, I've become more and more grateful to them, you know, yeah. and, and, and because, and that sentiment of just saying, oh, thank goodness they were there as a guardrail for me, as a constraint for me. If I had written two or three novels, I may still be doing that. And that would not have been the best use of my energies, I think. No, no question. So bumping into that wall and having them do that. And, and I'm still friends with them and friendly with them. And it was, um, it was kind of a, you know, real learning experience for me like that, getting, getting hit between the eyes with that stuff and saying, Hey, I appreciate that is, is a pretty good, pretty good way to stand. Well, you, you're in good company. Michael Lewis on his podcast just talked about and read passages from his terrible book that was not published. Nice. So had to had to give back that advance. Oh, tremendous. That's yeah. great. No, it's true. Uh, the book is called The Culture Playbook, 60 Highly Effective Actions to Help Your Group Succeed. Daniel, thank you for coming on the podcast. Always a blast, Kelly. Let's do it again. The Getting to Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Bye.